And as you're being seated, would you please grab your copy of God's Word and open it in whatever form you have it and turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 19. So our customary pattern here at the church is to pick a book of the Bible or a section of Scripture and preach through it verse by verse. And part of why we do that is because you cannot ride a hobby horse and you also cannot skip things that you would maybe otherwise uh, prefer to jump over. And we come to perhaps one of those texts this morning in Genesis 19. Um, We get to look at what the Lord says about and does with the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and the fate of Lot, Abraham's nephew. It's weighty, it's heavy, it's serious, and so I pray that I'll handle it with tactfulness and faithfulness. So Genesis 19, hear the word of the Lord this morning. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and has he become the judge? Now we will deal worse with you than with them. They pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. And the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his son-in-laws who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be joking. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one and my life will be saved? He said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also and I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, 
God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also and the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Well, thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we, we acknowledge that you do not wink at sin. You do not look lightly upon it. And yet so oftentimes we do. So oftentimes we can live in this world and be dangerously close to being of this world. And yet, Lord, here we have a sobering passage before us. And so, Lord, use it to make us more sober-minded, to be more fixated, not on the kingdoms of this fallen, depraved world, but on the kingdoms of our Lord and of our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, the east coast of Florida, which we live on, was anticipating the potential landfall of a Category 5 hurricane at the time of the reports. And I watched a news segment in which a reporter was interviewing people in evacuation zones, like this mobile park, that were refusing to flee from the storm that was coming. And one person they interviewed said they were refusing to evacuate because they didn't want to leave behind all their stuff in their trailer, and their two cats did not like to travel. And so they would rather risk the storm than travel to safety. This news report triggered me. I was dumbfounded by their reasoning. All it took for them to be willing to overlook the potential catastrophic damage of a Category 5 hurricane coming to them on the most vulnerable zone was a modest pile of material possessions and two cats that didn't like to travel. It seemed to me an illustration of how for so many, a great threat is no match for one's love of material possessions and earthly comforts. It does not matter the greatness of the threat because we love our stuff and our comforts so much. This is the problem that we meet in the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. The story portrays for us the perennial human problem that has existed throughout history since the fall from Eden. And it's that tug of war between worldliness and godliness. It's a tug of war between the love of this fallen world and listening to and honoring the God who is going to judge this fallen world. On the one hand, the city of Sodom paints for us an ugly but accurate picture. The Bible does not just overlook and sugarcoat and whitewash sin. It gives it to you in all of its rawness and ugliness. And it gives us a picture in Sodom of the deadly and degrading influence of worldliness. What is worldliness? 
Worldliness is anything that makes godliness seem strange and sin seem normal. That's worldliness. Worldliness is the normalizing of calling evil good and good evil. To use an illustration, it's when our culture celebrates a man who wins Woman of the Year by USA Today standards and calls it brave and anyone who objects to it is a bigot. That is the normalizing of sin and the strangeness of godliness. Worldliness is also anything that makes the temporary trinkets of this world seem far more valuable than the eternal treasures of heaven. It is an influence that we are all very susceptible to in subtle and strange ways. In my own life recently, I was convicted by my my entertainment diet, not just the amount of it, but the type of it. I I enjoy comedy. I, I find it humorous and entertaining. And yet, as I step back to evaluate some of the comedy that I found humorous and entertaining, I realize that to my shame, much of what I found humorous and entertaining were sins to which Christ went to the cross for. And so it was saddening. And Charles Spurgeon was very prophetic when he said, the reason the church has often had so little influence over the world is because the world has often had so much influence over the church. That is as true in his day as it is in ours. So Sodom is a picture of worldliness, but it's also a picture of God's judgment on worldliness. How is God going to deal ultimately with the love of the world? Well, the two angels that we meet in verse 1 of this chapter are the Lord's personal undercover investigators. They have come to see if the reports and the outcry that is coming up from Sodom to the Lord are in fact true. And it does not take them long to gather the necessary evidence to reach the verdict because the residents of Sodom are far more cooperative in the investigation than they even know. And the verdict and the sentence of Sodom is reached in verse 13. Look there with me. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. The thought of God's wrath for many is an unbearable thought. It is such an unbearable thought that we cannot bear to think that it has any place in God's perfect character. And yet we need to hear this wise insight from author Jerry Bridges who said this, God is perfect in his moral nature, which means that he cannot be indifferent to sin. Not only because sin is destructive to humans, but more importantly, because sin is ultimately an assault on his divine majesty. It is, wrath and justice, is God's necessary response in order to uphold his honor and moral authority in the universe. If God were indifferent to sin, he would not be perfect. It's as simple as that. In other words, God is not like the parent who continually threatens to count to 10, but lacks the moral courage to actually count that high and do something about it. I notice when we we get to nine, we start breaking into fractions. Nine and one sixteenth, nine and two sixteenths. God is not like the principal who gives empty warning after empty warning after empty warning to a disobedient child in school and yet lacks the moral courage to actually do something about it. God does not 
look indifferently upon sin. C.S. Lewis said in Language in the Wardrobe through Mr. Beaver, God is good, but he is not safe, which means God will not be trifled with, he will not be mocked, and he will not be tamed by our modern sensibilities. We have to remember, it is not God who will enter our courtroom to be judged by our feelings. It is we who will enter his to be judged by his authoritative and objective standards. So Sodom is a picture of the danger of worldliness and the seriousness of God's judgment. And what we're going to do as we walk through Genesis 19 is we are going to look at the five people that you meet in Sodom. And each person that you meet in Sodom is a picture, a window into the dangerous influence of worldliness and the differing responses to God's judgment. So if I were to title this term, it would be the five people you meet in Sodom. And the first person we meet is Lot. And we see in Lot that worldliness makes one conflicted and it can make one linger in the face of God's judgment. Lot is a picture of one who is conflicted because of worldliness and lingers in the face of God's judgment. Think about what we know about Lot so far. We, we know that Lot traveled with Abraham. He was there when God called Abraham. He was there when God gave Abraham the promises. He knows the rescuing power of God through Abraham when he already got himself in trouble one time and God blessed Abraham's endeavors to rescue him. Yet despite all that, where do we find him in verse one of chapter 19? Back in Sodom once again. There's something about Sodom that has such a draw on him because he... He sees the glittering fool's gold of Sodom and he doesn't see it for what it is. He knows the reputation of Sodom. All the way back in Genesis 13, we're told it's a place that was known for its very great wickedness. And first what he did was he just set up a tent near Sodom. Now, in verse one, where is he? He is sitting in the gate of Sodom. And then in verse three, we discover that he is upgraded from a tent to a house. A tent is the temporary dwelling of a sojourner and pilgrim, a stranger. That's what Abraham is. That's what Abraham lives in. A house is the more permanent dwelling of one who's become quite comfortable in this world. That's Lot. Now, this is not a statement about the biblical ethics of home ownership or the, the priorities you put on camping in your life. <laughs> this is to show the dangers of confusing this world with our ultimate and permanent home. That's what Lot fell into. Abraham knew that in light of the promises of God, he was a sojourner and a stranger on this world, and that he was ultimately looking for the city which is to come, the city of God. And Lot had lost sight of the city of God because he had become a little too enamored with the city of man. And in light of this, we would be wise to listen to this exhortation from Charles Spurgeon, who said this, may we live here like strangers, and make the world not a house, but an inn, in which we eat and lodge temporarily, while eagerly anticipating that perhaps even tomorrow we shall start making the journey home, to our true home. On the other side of Lot's conflictedness, we, we see him demonstrate some evidences of, of faith. There is this tug of war going on with him. He's conflicted. In verses 2 and 3, he demonstrates hospitality to these angelic visitors, just like Abraham did. Then in verses 12 to 14, he listens to and believes the angelic warning of the judgment on the city. And he goes in so far as in verse 14 to warn 
his son-in-laws of the judgment to come. He not only believes it, but he becomes, in a sense, a preacher of it. Well, then in verse 15 and 16, we see the tug of war go back the other way because he's conflicted. Look at verses 15 and 16. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. And here's the conflictedness. But he lingered. He knew that judgment was coming on Sodom, but he struggled to release his grip on the fading pleasures and temporary comforts of Sodom, even knowing what was going to happen to it. Do you linger like Lot? Do you feel the the tug of this world's temporary pleasures and fading comforts on your own heart? Do you believe in heaven and yet faintly long for it? Do you believe in hell and yet faintly shudder at the thought of it? Do you know that time is short and yet live as if it were going to be long and infinite? Do you know that we are in the midst of a spiritual warfare and yet often find yourself standing at peace in leisure? Do you know that the Son of Man is coming to judge the living and the dead and yet will he find you sleeping? If any of those questions bring conviction to your soul, then let these words from J.C. Ryle be the smelling salts that awaken zeal in you. Time does not linger. Death does not linger. Judgment does not linger. The devil does not linger. And this fallen world and its influence does not linger. Neither then let the children of God linger. Let not one of you linger. In the end, the story of lingering lot is a picture of the emptiness of worldliness. Look at verse 30. After all is said and done, this is what Lot is left with. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. So what was his portfolio before this? Seafront property, right near the Dead Sea. And it was rising faster than Palm Beach County. He had an unparalleled financial portfolio. He was prestigious in the city. He got to sit in the city gate, the place of authority and influence in the city. And now what does he have? He has a cave. Nothing. Do not store up treasures here on earth where moth and rust can destroy, where thieves can break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. We need to be those who are ultimately rich in love towards God and rich in service for God. That is godliness in this world. So may lingering lot serve as a sobering warning to us. Well, the second person we meet, second group we meet is the locals. And we see that worldliness has consumed the locals so much so that they are blind to God's judgment. In verse four, we're introduced to them. So before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So there's extensive language to show us that this is not an exception to the norm of Sodom. This is the norm. This is what marks the city. And there was five to seven, we see the depraved desires of the people of Sodom. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So, so unlike Lot, these men are not conflicted about worldliness. They're not being tugged back and forth. They are consumed by it. They're like a mob of addicts that must feed their depraved desires. This is a picture of what John tells us in 1 John 2.15, marks the love of the world. 
the lust of the flesh, the desires that must be filled and consumed and fed, regardless of what God thinks about them or what it means to others. They're like a fire that has leapt out of the fire pit where God intended it to stay and have now become a consuming forest fire. And Lot, again, is, is in many ways complicit with them because Lot foolishly and, and idiotically tries to appease the mob in verse 8 by offering them his own daughters. Again, you see that how Lot has been influenced and conflicted by the worldliness of Sodom. But verse 9 shows us that his offer did not deter them in the least. It only incited them even further. And then in verse 10, it's the angels. And it's only by the angel's hand that they snatch Lot to safety. And then verse 11, they strike the men with blindness. But even being struck with blindness, it does not satiate the lust of the flesh. Because it says, they wore themselves out groping for the door. If ever there was a picture of the wickedness of worldliness, this would be it. People blindly struggling to satisfy their depraved desires, to feed the lust of the flesh at whatever cost. And part of what we're meant to see here is that we have come a long way from God's original design in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, it was very good. Now in Genesis 19, it is very wicked. Genesis 2, we have Adam and Eve, the perfect biological and relational complement to each other in every way how God made them, designed and blessed by God to enjoy the intimacy and beauty of a covenant marriage for their good and God's glory. They knew each other. That is where intimacy flourishes like a well-watered garden in the covenant of marriage. And yet in Genesis 19, we go from one flesh union to the lust of the flesh. And the best commentary on Genesis 19 is Paul's words in Romans 1. I'll summarize it. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. The men gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therein lies another prominent example of worldliness. Worldliness takes what God has designed for our good and his glory and treats it as if it were Plato, a child's play toy that can be molded and reshaped and renamed or discarded according to the internal feelings and desires of the individual. And then whatever you do with that Plato should be celebrated by the culture at large. We live in the day and age where the ultimate objective authoritative standard is one's internal feelings and desires. We live in the age of expressive individualism. No one is committed to any objective beliefs and standards. The only thing they're committed to is living out their internal feelings and desires. So what do we make of this and take away from this? We have to realize that the worldliness exemplified in Sodom did not die with Sodom. As Paul points out in Romans 1, this influence of worldliness is going to be with us until the end of the age when Christ returns, which means it is present in the culture in which we live And it is also part of the mission field that we're called to reach. Amidst this culture, the church is called to be a counterculture. Amidst this city, we are called to be a different city. And the best defense is a good offense. Let our joy in God's good, creational, natural design abound more than all the world's joy in their distortions. As the world struggles to define what a woman or a man is, let us marvel that God has wonderfully 
and differently design men and women to be a biological, relational, temperamental complement to one another. God has delightfully and beautifully designed us to be different, and we should celebrate it and know how to define it. As the world shouts their abortions, let the church be like Christ and welcome the little children in our midst, and if it be appropriate to our station in life, to make lots of babies, okay? As the world scoffs at those who honor God in celibacy and singleness because of their commitment to a biblical standard of ethics, let us honor those who honor the Lord as first-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And as the world rejects God's definitive and authoritative definition of marriage, let us delight in that covenant of marriage. Let us protect us. Let us preserve it with joy and help one another to do the same. This is evangelism by delighting in God's good design. But that should be coupled with evangelism by loving sinners more than they love their sin. This is is an ideal that we will never attain, but we should aim for. Here, Here it is. We need to be uncompromising in biblical ethics and unrelenting in showing biblical love. And those two things always need to be paired together. Uncompromising in truth and unrelenting in showing grace and kindness. When Jesus came on this earth, dwelt among us, what was he full of? He was full of truth and grace. Truth and grace should be the inseparable Siamese twins of the Christian life. And we need them to live amidst a culture that is consumed with worldliness and blind to God's judgment. Well, third, we meet Lot's son-in-laws. And worldliness has made them calloused. And so they laugh in the face of God's judgment. Look at verse 14. So Lot went out and said to his son-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his son-in-laws thought he was joking. If the locals were an example of how worldliness can produce depraved desires that consume you, then Lot's son-in-laws are an example of how worldliness can desensitize our desires so that you have no capacity to take serious that which is serious, to weigh what is truly weighty. You lose all spiritual and eternal sensibility because worldliness has desensitized your desires. Lot's son-in-laws have become so calloused through the influence of Sodom that they have no ability to take what their father-in-law says to them seriously. All they can think of is that he's joking with them, so they go on doing what they do all the time, just laugh and have a good old time. Makes you wonder why he let his daughters marry them in the first place. There's a rare medical condition called CIP. It stands for congenital insensitivity to pain. And it's a condition in which someone cannot feel physical pain or illness. And some of you are thinking, what's so bad about that? I would love to have that condition. But it is actually an extremely dangerous condition. Because as much as we may not like feeling pain or sickness, feeling those things is actually vital to survival. Those with this medical condition are at high risk for severe disease or injury because they lack the capacity to respond properly when these problems arise. Their body tells them that everything is fine. It does not register that they're in pain or they're sick. So it goes untreated. In many ways, this describes the eventual impact of an undiscerning and unmoderated diet of the world. It it describes what can happen 
And without discernment, without moderation, you just drink in all that the world brings your way and then how it ends up desensitizing your spiritual senses. The constant noise of entertainment, the endless stream of social media can build calluses on our spiritual ears and leave us with little capacity to hear God's word seriously and soberly. The unbroken chain of busyness as we move from one activity to the next, just kind of going along in the the stream of busyness in this world, can desensitize us to our need to rest, to be still before the Lord and know that he is God, to, to build and invest in substantive relationships. It can cause us to be stretched so thin that we never actually go deep. A key to keeping our spiritual senses sharp is building the habits of discernment and moderation. The habit of discernment means that you fight to never just be a passive receiver of this world, but always an active evaluator of this world, that you're always sifting. You're like the person who's looking for gold at the beach, always picking up sand everywhere and sifting, sifting everything that comes your way. The goal of amusement and entertainment is to get you to shut off your brain and just eat what you're spoon-fed. The goal of the Christian life is to get you to turn on your brain so that you love God with all your mind all the time by discerning all things that come your way from a biblical perspective. And then always remember the three keys to living wisely and carefully in God's world. Moderation, moderation, moderation. Those are essential to fighting off the desensitizing effect of worldliness. Those are the preventative measures from being so desensitized to the seriousness of God in eternity that we laugh in the face of his judgment. Well, the fourth person we meet in Sodom is Lot's wife. And she was captivated by worldliness and thus failed to escape God's judgment. Look at verses 23 to 26 with me. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. If you're wondering what the application of this is, you don't have to wonder because Jesus gives it to us in his own teaching to his disciples. In Luke 17, verse 32, he says this about Lot's wife. He says this simply, remember Lot's wife. It's the second shortest verse in all the Bible. Kids, if you want to memorize it, I'll give you a piece of candy. Remember Lot's wife. We may think her to be a small character who gave an innocent look, but Jesus thinks it's so significant what happened that he says, let her always be remembered by disciples. Her look back was not a look of the eyes. It was a look of the heart that longed for what it was leaving behind. J.C. Ryle points out in his wonderful sermon titled A Woman to be Remembered, which I put a couple copies of it back there. It's so helpful. Just summarize it for you. He said this about Lot's wife. That look was a little thing, but it told of a great love for the world. Her heart was in Sodom, though her body was now outside. She had left her affections behind when she had fled from her home in Sodom. Her eye turned to the place where her treasure was as the compass of a needle turns toward the pole. And I would echo his plea at the end of his sermon. Remember Lot's wife and cling to nothing, however dear, which interferes with your soul's salvation. Give up everything, however precious, 
which comes between you and your Savior. Remember Lot's wife and how she was so captured by the appeal of worldliness that she failed to escape God's judgment. Finally, the last people we meet from Sodom are Lot's daughters. And worldliness has so corrupted Lot's daughters that they fail to learn from God's judgment. I'm not going to read the section, but in verses 30 to 38, you get the, the final episode, the, the lasting legacy of Lot. This is the last thing we, we learn about and see about Lot in all the scriptures. And it is a sad and tragic and depraved end. The details of verses 30 to 38 are, are self-explanatory. I don't, you don't need a commentary on it. But we need to know its implications. What it goes to show is that the city of Sodom may have been destroyed, but the depravity and distorted desires of Sodom are alive and well. You can remove the person from Sodom, but it does not mean that you have removed the influence of Sodom from the person. Sin is not a geographical problem. You cannot move away from it. You can run, but you cannot hide. Sin is a cardiovascular problem. It is not a matter of where you live, but it is a matter of the heart. No matter where you live or how much you try to shield and shelter yourself, the conforming influence of the world will seek to find you where you live and conform you to its beliefs and values and ideals, just as it did Lot's daughters. I was struck afresh by this in our own modern day, listening to an interview with uh, Pastor Kevin DeYoung. He had just published a Bible curriculum for kids. I handed out some of the Easter ones to some of you guys. And this is what motivated him to publish this Bible curriculum. He said, our world is constantly catechizing us, meaning it's constantly instructing, teaching, training, forming us. No matter how many limits you put on screen time or how much you try to limit technology, if you are living in this world, then the world is trying to catechize you. Maybe not in a formal way, but in a real way. Disney has a discipleship plan for you, whether you acknowledge it or not. He goes on to say, the world doesn't give us logical arguments that say, hey, here are the reasons why you should accept this belief or adopt this pattern of behavior. It just normalizes it. It just constantly parades it before you, presents it to you and says, this is normal. That's its approach to catechism. That's its discipleship method. The question is not whether or not you or your children are being catechized. It's whether we are going to catechize ourselves and our children or just let the world do it because the world already is. Again, the best defense is a good offense. Paul says in Romans 12, 1, speaking on the conforming influence of the world, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but run to the hills and start a Puritan colony where you grow your own food and sew your own clothes. I thought about that. I'm not very good at sewing, so I said no, no. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to discern what is good and pleasing and acceptable to the Lord. When Jesus prays in John 17 for his disciples, he doesn't pray that they be taken out of the world. He prays that in the world that they would be sanctified by truth, which is the word of God. That is the biblical remedy to the corrupting influence of worldliness. But even more than that, we have to fight fire with fire. The greatest antidote to the love and allure and draw of the world is to know the loveliness of Christ. 
the endearment of Christ, the grace and kindness of Christ. You can only displace a love of the world if you replace it with a love of Christ. It is the only thing that is thick and substantive enough to displace a love of the world. Only his shed blood can cleanse our worldly hearts. Only his relentless rescuing love can snatch us out of the city of destruction. Look at verse 16 of Genesis 19. What got Lot out of Sodom? Surely it wasn't him, but he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. We often ask the question, why did God do this to Sodom? The real question is, why did God spare one person from Sodom? When you understand sin rightly and the holiness of God properly, that is the question you will marvel at and bow before. The only reason you are standing here, not sucked into and succumbed to the love of the world is because God has snatched you by his grace, the Lord being merciful to you. Only the purifying power of God's grace can enable you to overcome the seduction of this fallen world. Only the spiritual armor which the Lord provides for us can help us stand firm in the day of the spiritual battle that we fight. Only the love of Christ can displace the love of the world. When someone sets his affection on the love of Christ, he crucifies the world as a dead and undesirable thing. Fill your affections with Christ, his cross and his resurrection and his righteousness, and there will be no room in the inn for sin. Let's pray.